or through this series, we've been talking about the stance or the posture of the church or Christians towards a whole bunch of different cultural issues. It would be hard to imagine that there is any issue that would be more complex or contentious or deeply divisive than this issue of homosexuality and gender dysphoria and gender identity. This is the polarizing cultural issue of our time. So what I'm doing here is I'm kind of feeling like I need to take the posture that we need to take. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't normally sit and talk. You know, Andy Stanley does it really well. He's got like the little table beside him and he sits and it's nice. I see why he does it because it's kind of relaxing, you know. Actually, if you read the Bible, it was Jesus that sat and everybody that listened stood around him. So it's supposed to be the other way around, but that's all right. That's a cultural thing too. Um, but no, I see why he does it because I feel like this morning that, that we need to have this posture with this particular conversation because it is deeply personal. And it is something that we just need to sit down like this and talk about as a church. Um, that we just have to have a conversation about why is there this polarization? Why do we have to take the stand that we stand? Because I know that that's a question that a lot of us have, especially younger generations. And it's harder maybe for us that are in our 40s or 50s or 60s to really get this. But you have to understand that if you're a 12-year-old or if you're a 16-year-old or if you're even a 25-year-old in culture right now, you have grown up hearing one message tens of thousands of times that there is absolutely nothing wrong with how you express your sexuality or your gender. It's completely up to you. And you've been told that in school. You've been told it in your sex ed class. You've been told it in the media. You've been told it on sitcoms. You've been told it in movies. You have been told ever since you were born 10,000 times and more that your sexual identity is completely up to you. And in that time, if you're 12 or 14 or 16 or 18 years old, you've had maybe two messages at church about that. You've maybe looked into the scripture three or four times about that and maybe not really understood what you read or maybe not had a very good message when you got it. And so this is the reality, and it's, I get that it's hard. It's hard for me to get it. I can imagine it's even harder for people older than me to get it, that this is, a, this is why it's so polarizing, because it's been made an issue by our culture. And so the question that I really want to answer this morning or the angle that I wanted to take, and there was dozens of angles I could have taken and uh, could have taken on this. The angle that I do want to take is that we do just have this conversation and that we do talk about, and by conversation meaning I'm going to speak to you. No. <laughs> yeah, in this format it's hard to have a dialogue, but it is a conversation. And that's why I wanted to take this posture, because as a church I know that we have to ask ourselves, why don't we as a church just follow the culture? Because... Um, churches have done this historically in the past, and churches, mainline churches especially, are doing that right now. They're just, they're just following the culture on this issue. And so a lot of our younger people especially, but everybody might be asking the question, why is this a big deal? Why do the church, whatever the church is in quotation marks, why, why does it take the stand that it takes? 
Um, churches has followed culture on other issues before for good and bad. And, 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 and is this one of the good times that we should follow culture or is this one of the bad times? I mean, any honest investigation into the historical church would show that in any given century, in any given country, in any given national context, the church is, is greatly influenced by the culture around us, right? It's greatly influenced by how how they lived, how they interpreted scripture, and how they treated others. And, and other churches and culture are trying to tell us that, look, you're just interpreting scripture wrong. And that you need to get with the times and you need to follow culture in this way. But where the church weakly or meekly followed in the footsteps of culture, we find that historically the church too easily rationalized and then amplified bad practices. I mean, if you were to look in history, honestly look in history, there were broad swaths of the church that went to scripture to justify and then amplify the right to kidnapping and forced slavery. Now, at the same time, there were wiser and more faithful Christians and churches that were standing against that and resisted it, but we can't deny that the church followed culture blindly in this idea that, hey, let's just go get some slaves and make them work for us. And then there was the church, when it weakly followed in the footsteps of culture, found it too easy to adopt a dishonorable and an unbalanced patriarchy I mean, we've dealt with this. This is maybe what was the seeds of the revolution that we're in now. The fact that there is a a very unbalanced sense of male entitlement and chauvinism and sexism that the churches, broad swaths of the church, justified and rationalized from Scripture and did not preach a balanced view and a submissive and a mutually submissive and servanthood view of husband and wife. But wiser and more faithful branches of the church all through history and in different cultures did model Christ-like honoring of both sexes. And then when the church weakly followed in the footsteps of culture, we find that it also too easily rationalized and amplified homophobia and the marginalization of the poor, the marginalization, marginalization of the addicted, the marginalization of anyone different or anyone queer was marginalized by the church and feared by the church. And you got this period in time in certain cultures when we followed the culture where the church became a very pristine club that you had to identify with to belong. And we followed culture in that. That was not something that we invented. That was something that we followed culture in. And culture will try to tell us that the church caused those things. It caused patriarchy and it caused homophobia and it caused slavery and all those things. But look, if, if you were a homosexual in China, the most atheist country in the world 15 years ago, you would not have been a happy homosexual. Okay? Homophobia and anything about homosexuality is not a church issue. It's a human issue. It's a cultural issue. And the church has followed the culture into bad and into good. And so the question for us today is, because as the churches are shifting, as the mainline churches are saying, oh, you know, let's just reinterpret scripture here. Let's change. You know, we've been misguided by culture and we need to shift with culture on this issue. Then a lot of people are asking the questions, why don't we? Like, why don't we go that way? Why, why would we have any conversation with a homosexual friend of ours or a homosexual co-worker or a homosexual brother? Why, why would we have that conversation with them if we were just standing on culture before and we need to move with culture again? So that's, that, to me, is the question that we have to talk about today. As Lakeside Church, as the wider global church of of God that stands on the testimony of Scripture and believes in the gospel, what are our convictions that make us draw a line here in terms of how we interpret Scripture and how we treat sin and what is sin? And so that's what we're going to talk about today as quickly as I can to get through this. But I think it's important because, because to be honest, we don't 
Like, like we don't enter into this lightly. I don't want to be called a homophobe by the culture, right? I don't, I got friends who are gay and they're nice people. I like them. I don't dislike or like a gay person any more than I like or dislike any of you, frankly. Um, you know, we meet people and we like them or dislike them based on all kinds of different reasons. And homosexuality isn't one of the reasons I like or dislike a person. So if I'm going to have a hard conversation with a friend or a brother or a niece or a nephew about why I have to take the stand that I, that I take, then I have to understand the convictions that lie behind it. And so that's what we're looking at today is we're looking at why wouldn't we just buy into the culture on this? Why wouldn't we go with the United Church on this? Why wouldn't we go in this direction? And to be clear, as a church family, I'll just also put it out there because you'll hear more in the future. This is a topic that they're talking about in the CBOQ right now. That's the Baptist denomination that we belong to. And this is an issue that came up at assembly this year. And so there are gay-affirming CBOQ churches out there. And, uh, and so we've got to decide, what, what does it mean to affirm? What does it mean to love? What is the gospel? When it says that we can be transformed, what does transformation really mean? Do we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live new lives, or don't we? What are our convictions? And so that's why I'm sitting down. That's why we're having this this way, because it's this type, of, this type of conversation, I think. So the posture that I'm taking here with you, I hope, is sort of a symbol of the posture I think we have to take with those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, with those that are struggling with gender dysphoria, that are not sure they were born the right gender, or are confused about who they're attracted to, or are confused about who, what their identity is. We have to sit down like this, and we have to have just honest conversations with them. And we've got to... We've got to show them why we believe what we believe. Not because we hate them, but because we love them. Not because we want to cause them harm, or that we just want to say, well, you know, you're, attracted, you're a guy and you're attracted to guys, and you're not allowed to do that, so I guess it sucks to be you. You know, you're just going to have to deal with that burden the rest of your life. Sorry. That's not an answer either. From our convictions, we have to understand why we're saying what we're saying, and then we have to understand from our convictions what hope we hold out to those that suffer from same-gender attraction. And I get it that right now there's people in this congregation right now, it's personal to your family, personal to uh, uh, your coworkers, it's personal to you. You know, I don't know. Maybe you're experiencing same-sex attraction as well. And so you may feel like you're on the fringe of this conversation, but I don't want you to feel that way. You're actually in the middle of this conversation and uh, the middle of this, this church community uh, and this faith community where we want to support you. So I think it's important that we understand this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the convictions that we have. Uh, because if, if we don't have convictions on this from Scripture, then there's no reason for us to take the stand that we have. I have no desire to make somebody's life miserable or to have them think I don't like them, unless I have a really good reason to. And God explains to us what the convictions that we have to have as, as believers and why we believe what we believe, but ultimately why it's good and why it's hopeful for all sinners, including us. The first conviction that we have uh, is that marriage is sacred. And I'm sorry that I don't have a PowerPoint because I absolutely had no idea which direction this was going to go this morning. Um, the first conviction that we have, really, it doesn't directly have anything to do with homosexuality, homosexuality or, or gender dysphoria at all. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the presence or absence of same-sex attraction. It's, it's not based on the negative prohibition of, of same-sex relationships. Uh, the first conviction that we hold as Christians and understand as believers is the positive affirmation that God designed marriage as something sacred. And God designed our genders to complement each other in that sacredness. So before the fall, before sin entered into the world, 
in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and 2, 18 to 25, you can read about how God created male and female and how he gave male and female to each other in marriage before sin. And this was for all humanity. This just wasn't just for Christians. So marriage is not just a nice social ceremony that we invented. It's not just a reason for a party that we came up with. Marriage is something that God established. And he established in marriage, he established the genders that would participate in marriage, all for good reasons. Marriage was given to us by God for a purpose. There's a design and a purpose in our sexuality that goes into marriage that are good. They're good. It's good for our joy, and it's good for God's glory. It's good for society. It's good for stability. It's good for security. It's good for health, emotional and otherwise. It's good, obviously, for procreation and education of children. And we can't even overlook that as believers. I mean, every homosexual and every non-binary gender fluid that's alive today is alive because of a heterosexual binary union. Everybody's got a mother and a father. And that's the way God designed it. And that's a reality. We can talk about non-binary, non-binary and gender fluid and all of those other things, but we all had binary parents. And God designed marriage that way. And God designed our sexuality that way. I mean, we are the conviction as Christians that we oppose racism because we believe and trust that God made everyone in his image and that his purpose for our joy and his glory is that people from every tribe and nation will praise him. And so as Christians, we have convictions about ideas like racism. And in the same way, our conviction that marriage is sacred gives us insight into why homosexual practices are not God-glorifying and not designed for our ultimate joy and satisfaction. And so our first conviction as Christians is simply that marriage is sacred. God designed it for a reason. He designed us for a reason. And there's a whole bunch of reasons I'm not going to get into this morning. But just understand that if you're not convinced that God created marriage and that marriage is sacred and that there's a good purpose for our joy and his glory and social and emotional health and stability and education and procreation, if you don't believe that, if you don't have that conviction, then you've just knocked one of the foundations out of why you would argue against homosexual practice or transgender transgenderism, right? So this is a conviction that as Christians we have to understand. And and when we sit down and talk to our sons or our daughters or our friends about homosexuality and same-gender attraction, we have to say, like, like, what do you think about the sacredness of marriage? What do you think God intended when he created? And if they're outside the church and they're like, you believe in Adam and Eve? What? (laughs) And and, and I'm going to do my thing and you're going to do your thing? Hey, we don't judge outside the church, okay? Right? Paul says... We're not to judge outside the church. We're, we're not to judge out there. We're to hold each other accountable here and build each other up and encourage each other here inside the church. And so we're not denying that culture is going to go sideways on this. But when we're having a conversation about someone's faith and about someone coming to Christ, and we're talking about someone who's in the church who's struggling with same-sex attraction, then we have to talk to them about the sacredness of marriage and what that means to them, to their faith, and how it glorifies God and whether God intends good for them through that. The second conviction that we have is that even though marriage was given before sin, we did sin. And this is important. This is Romans 1, right? Mankind's rebellion has created disordered passions within all of us. Okay, and Romans 1 is where you... I'm not going to go all through Romans 1 for the sake of time, but if you go to Romans 1, 25 down to uh, 32, Paul talks about how we, in our foolishness, professing to be wise, we took our eyes off the Creator and instead we worshiped the Creator and that God gave us over to sinful passions and desires. And one of the examples that he uses is homosexuality, but not just homosexuality. He said, all manner of unrighteousness, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips. This is starting to hit closer to home. 
slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, (laughs) foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, says, though they know God's righteous decree, those that practice such things deserve to die. And Paul doesn't mean that they deserve to be put to death. He's talking about they deserve spiritual death as a consequence of sin. He says they not only do, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And this is really important for our convictions, is that we understand that we are far from perfect, that we are all broken, that we all have deceitful and sinful and broken and evil desires, and that we are all haters of God. We all started out that way. Right? Some of us don't have to go back that far. Maybe last month. Right? Or maybe it was when you were a kid. Or maybe it was when you were a teenager. But there was a point when you hated God. You hated the implication of Him and the demand that He was putting on your life. And in our foolishness, we exchanged the idea of God because we didn't like the idea of God. And we decided we're going to worship ourselves instead. We're going to worship our own desires, our own passions. We're going to get what we want. And for some people, that was greed. That was, I'm going to get money. I'm going to get security. I'm going to get all the toys. For other people, it was arrogance. I'm going to put other people down. I'm going to build myself up. I'm going to assume everybody else is weaker and stupider than me. For some people, it was boasting. It was their ego. It was fame. For other people, it was sexuality. I'm going to get what I want the way I want it, whether it's you know multiple women or multiple men in a row or at the same time or whether it was a woman for a woman or a man for a man, but it was a disordered passions. One of the convictions that we have to have as believers and in this conversation and why we take the stand that we have, the stand that we have, is that we are all disordered and we are all broken and we are all bent, including in our sexuality, including heterosexuals. There's nobody here that has a perfectly pure heterosexual passion. And God is no more pleased with our heterosexual dysfunction than he would be pleased with homosexual dysfunction. None of us are off the hook in this. Okay? We're all bent. And we all need to repent of the way we pursue our passions improperly. Paul's going to go on later in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and he could have said women there too, uh, or thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is our third conviction, that not only are we disordered because we've rebelled against God, but that our rebellion has a consequence, and that something has to be done about that consequence, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so like I said at the beginning, there was no reason for me to have this hard conversation with someone who struggles with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria and say, you know, you really shouldn't be sleeping with another man or you really shouldn't be sleeping with another woman and to go through that difficult time unless I really felt that they were putting themselves in jeopardy. Not just jeopardy for their physical health here, not just jeopardy for their emotional health here, not just jeopardy to society because marriage serves a purpose and it's destabilizing marriage, not just you know, for my selfish reasons, not just because I'm uncomfortable with them, whether I am or I'm not, not for those reasons, but because I really think they're in danger. Yes, for their joy and for their eternal salvation. 
And I would have that same conversation with someone who was an adulterer, who was a fornicator, who was a pornographer, who was a gossip, who was unforgiving, who was arrogant, who was greedy, who was tearing people down in the church. I would have that same conversation, and it would not be a fun conversation, but I would sit down with them and have that hard conversation because I have this conviction Because scripture tells us that we are disordered and we are broken and that disorderliness and that brokenness appears in our life in these things. It shows up in our life as these behaviors. And notice Paul says, it doesn't say it's a sin that you're attracted to other men. It doesn't say it's a sin that you're attracted to other women. It says it's a sin to practice and act on those desires. Just as he would say, look, You're going to be tempted to be greedy. You're going to be tempted to be materialistic. You're going to be tempted to be arrogant. You're going to be tempted to gossip. You're going to be tempted to be boastful. You're going to be tempted to be disobedient to your parents. But the temptation is not sin. right? Paul is not saying the temptation is sin. Paul's saying that temptation, that disordered desire, that passion to pursue your own selfishness comes from our rebellion against God. It's not a sin to experience those disordered passions. It's a sin to act on them because of our next conviction. Christ came for the disordered. Paul doesn't stop with the bad news and says, you know, you're disordered, you're rebellious, you have all these problems and you act out in this way. He says, he continues in 1 Corinthians 6.11, just keep reading. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Right? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Such were all of us. Now, now don't be mistaken here. Paul is speaking to the city of Corinth, okay? And we've talked about Corinth a lot. Okay, Paul is not some naive bumpkin who doesn't realize that guys are attracted to guys and girls are attracted to girls, okay? Corinth was a hotbed of ritual sexual behavior, okay? Temple prostitution, orgies, homosexuality, you name it, Corinth had it, okay? So Paul is not some country bumpkin who doesn't realize that, you know, well, people are born this way and they just have to act on the way they're born. Paul is absolutely crystal clear that we are all born that way. We're all born broken. That's who he's speaking to. An entire church full of broken people. And these people were behaving in ways that they thought made no difference with their relationship to God. It would have no impact on their joy. It would have no impact on the glory of God. And Paul's saying it does have an impact both on your future joy and the glory of God and on your future hope. I get that you're born that way. Paul's not stupid. But he's saying, Jesus came for you. Such were some of you. But we have another conviction that we don't have to stay that way that we actually believe in a transforming gospel that doesn't leave us the way we were. We may still have the temptations. We may still have same-sex attraction. We may still be arrogant people. We may still be unsecure people who want to accumulate wealth so that we can somehow solve our security on our own. We may still have all those same temptations, but God does not leave us to wallow in the fear of them and in the futility of them. He rescues us by his Son. And by the Holy Spirit, he transforms us. Jesus said this himself. Matthew 9, 11 to 13. He was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Okay, he was eating with these same type of people that Paul was talking to in his church. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, 
Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Maybe it was one of the, it was that cultural period when the church had become an elite club, right? We we saw that before, and we're accused of it still today. But Jesus says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow, that's good news. That's good news for everyone who struggles, who finds themselves on any of those lists. Whether you're disobedient to parents, or gossip, or boastful, or arrogant, or just greedy, or just mean, or abusive, or accumulating wealth to yourself, or cheating, or lying, or practicing homosexuality or adultery, or fornication, or pornography, or any of those things, the good news is is that Christ did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And as believers, we're convinced, we're convicted, we trust that Jesus has come to restore and reorder our disordered lives, and all of our disordered lives, and that everyone is welcome to come, that there's nobody who can't come through these doors and hear this good news and be loved. We all can then we have another conviction, and this is important to our conversation too as we go out there and as we equip ourselves to engage with those brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and co-workers and neighbors. This is important in the stance that we take to people who are struggling with any sin, but today we're talking about homosexuality and the practice of homosexuality and transgenderism. This, it's this conviction. It's the conviction that God does the redeeming. Okay, we don't do the redeeming. We don't do the saving. We don't do the correcting. We don't change their life. God, by the Holy Spirit, changes their life. And so this is especially true at the intersection of homosexuality and faith, right? When you have those people, like we have in the church now, I'm speaking specifically to the mainline churches, I'm speaking specifically to this issue that's bubbling up in the CBOQ and in Baptist churches, where churches are saying you can somehow hold on to both. That you can hold on to the, you can have the Holy Spirit and still practice homosexuality because they believe that somehow the Holy Spirit will not convict a homosexual homosexual of their sin because it's not a sin. And so this this is where the conversation really gets tricky, right? This is where you're definitely sitting down. Because this is the intersection now, not just of the world out there and the world in here, and we expect them to do what they're going to do, and we do what we do, and that's fine. But now it's the intersection where people in the church, where people who profess to believe are sitting down and saying, I think I've got a relationship with Jesus. I've got the same Holy Spirit you do, but I, don't, I think I can, I can stay married to my husband or I can stay married to my wife if I'm a girl. And it's okay because Jesus loves me as a homosexual. Well, that's true. Jesus does love you as a homosexual with your same sex attraction and, or your gender dysphoria or whatever it is you're struggling in your identity with. Jesus absolutely loves you in that, but he does not love the practice that you're in any more than he loves the practice of the guy who's going home and watching porn or the person who's cheating on their taxes or the person that's gossiping and ripping somebody down in the back hallway of the church later on today. He doesn't love any of that behavior. He absolutely loves you, but he doesn't love your behavior. And this is, and this is where it gets tricky because as Christians, we feel compelled that, to make homosexuality some sort of first-order sin, like it's important above all other sins. And if we're talking to a homosexual, we have to, you know, we have to go after that and keep rebuking them about their homosexuality. But it's not up to us. It's up to the Holy Spirit to transform them. Okay, so one of our convictions, let me put it this way, or one of my convictions as I talk to someone who struggles this way, 
and who struggles this way and then in addition to that professes to know Christ, is I just have to say, well, if, if we're reading the same Bible and if we have the same Holy Spirit, then it may not be today, it may not be next week, it may not even be till next year. But I'm convicted, I trust, I believe that God's going to move in your life and convict you of that. Because God reveals the things in our heart all the time. If God revealed the first time we were saved, all the things in our heart that we had to repent of and let go of, we'd be crushed, right, as Christians. Is this not true in your experience that God reveals things to us over time? That we didn't even realize that we were disordered in our passions until God showed us a little bit later. It's like, wow, I didn't realize I was that way. I need to repent of that. God will do that in all of those who truly seek after him and love him. And it's hard for us to understand that it's not up to us to be the Holy Spirit for homosexuals. We can just let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit and let him convict and let him change their minds and transform them. We just have to love them. And we just have to keep speaking the truth and saying, hey, I'll talk about those verses with you. You know, I'll talk about marriage. I'll talk about Matthew. I'll talk about 1 Corinthians. I'll talk about 1 Timothy. I'll talk about Romans 1. I'll talk about any of those things with you and love you and work through this with you. But we're convicted as a church that what the Word says and what the Holy Spirit will do are not two different things. And so we're convicted as a church that those churches and those believers that have become homosexual practice affirming, it's a mouthful, that they are following culture and they're not following Scripture. right? And so we have to stand our ground here. Not that we don't love these people. Not that we're saying we can pray the gay away. You know, that if they just come to Jesus, they're going to stop being attracted to men or stop being attracted to women. They may never be. Just like we all live with struggles. But we're convicted that God does the redeeming, not us. Now, the reason it's important we believe this is final conviction, maybe second last conviction, is that we are convicted. We trust. We believe from Scripture that this is true of God and the Holy Spirit. We believe as Christians that denial of our disordered self yields joy. In other words, we believe that no matter what our disorderliness is, no matter what our rebellion is, whatever our personal besetting sin is, and it's different for all of us, what we believe as Christians is that if we lay that down, if we lay down our rebellion, if we lay down our sinful practice, if we give up the addiction, if we give up the arrogance, if we give up the love of money, if we give up whatever it is, and we obey God and fully treasure Christ, we believe absolutely that that yields a greater joy for us, both now and obviously in eternity, than it would be to pursue our own fallen nature. And so every conversation I'm having with every person who's struggling with every kind of sin, my answer is all to the same to them. And some of you have heard me say it, is that God has in store for us, God has in store for you a greater joy than what you are pursuing. As you pursue that adulterous relationship, as you pursue that anger, as you pursue that rage, as you pursue that materialism, as you pursue that same-sex relationship, as you pursue whatever it is you're pursuing that is taking you away from treasuring Christ and being obedient to God, you are not pursuing for yourself the joy that God has for you. And so when I sit down with someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction, I can look them in the eye and say, I am convinced that if you would lay that down and treasure Christ and trust in him, there is a far greater joy for you. 
there is a far greater joy for you. Just like there is a greater joy for the adulterer and the fornicator and the pornographer and the greedy and the gossiper and the arrogant, there is a far greater joy for your life now if you pursue God in obedience to this. And not only that, there's an eternal joy to be with him forever. And we're convinced of that. We are convinced of that. Because if I'm not convicted of that, then I have no reason to, do, to not go along with culture. I like homosexuals. I like gay people. They're nice people. I have no reason to put a burden on them that I wouldn't lift myself. So I have to be convinced. We have to be convinced and convicted of these things and believe them and have the testimony of them. And this is the normal Christian life. And that's the other thing that we can share with our homosexual friends. It's like, look, you don't think I'm burying? You don't think I'm laying stuff down? You don't think I don't have to put stuff down and leave it and pursue a greater joy in Christ? We all do. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We believe these things. They're not just words in some old book. They're the truth of how we live as Christians. And so we live this way. Nick Rowan, who's a pastor who suffers from... Suffers. I I keep saying suffers, and I understand that that's a trigger word. (laughs) I'll just say experience. It is a suffering, but I'll say experience. Nick Rowan experiences same-sex attraction. He says, when we fight temptation and turn to Jesus and trust in his promises and rely on his spirit, God is pleased. Okay, he's going to be pleased with those that are struggling when they turn to him and rely on him. He's not mainly displeased because I need to fight, but he is pleased because I am fighting. He's not mainly displeased because I need to fight. Right? God is not displeased when we struggle with our temptation. He's pleased that you're struggling. And he's there with his Holy Spirit to encourage and lift you up and show you a greater treasure and a greater joy in Jesus. And finally, before I get to a couple testimonies, and then we will get to communion, we have a conviction, and this is another important conviction that sort of ties back to the first one. The final conviction is this, is that fulfilling and intimate relationships are not dependent on sex and marriage. Okay, and this is part of the message that comes along with this message of, of, of accepting homosexuality, is that culture has said that our entire identity and our fulfillment is wrapped up in sexual satisfaction and marital intimacy and it would be cruel and inhuman to deny anybody that satisfaction and that intimacy and I would agree with that statement that it would be cruel if I believed that sex and marriage is the only way to have that intimacy and I don't believe that it is I mean there are lots of reasons because of our brokenness in this broken world that we need to be single there are women who will be single and celibate their whole life. There are men who will be single and celibate their whole life, heterosexual men and heterosexual women. Okay, this has nothing to do with gender preference. This just has to do with the reality that singleness is a reality that some people bear. Being married and having that particular relationship is a desire and something that they have to lay down. And it's no different for those that have same-sex attraction. That there is fulfilling and intimate relationships that are not dependent on sex and marriage. And as Christians, we believe that. We believe that God has given to his believers intimate, deep, personal, transparent, meaningful relationships among believers and in the church for those who 
don't experience them in marriage. And in fact, you can be married. Unfortunately, in culture, more so, in, I hope so, not as much in the church, but in the culture especially, you can be married and have sex a lot and not have a meaningful, deep, personal relationship. Right? There's a lot of empty marriages out there too. So marriage and sex are no guarantee of this intimacy. But we believe that it's possible and really truly possible only through Christ. Deep friendships and loving community and fellowship in Christ's church is the occasion for sacrificial love and intimacy. And it's not contingent on sexual expression. Sam Alberry says, the most fully human and complete person who ever lived with Jesus Christ, he never married. He was never in a romantic relationship. He never had sex. And if we say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, then we are calling our Savior subhuman. Sex and marriage are great. Okay? Get it? But they aren't everything. And that is a, that's another sit-down conversation you have to have with someone, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual. Someone who has to deal with celibacy and being unmarried their whole life or even just for a big period of their life, that's definitely a sit-down conversation. But the reason I bring this up as a conviction for us in the church is that we have to be convicted of this and we have to follow through on it in our compassion and our understanding for those that are called to be celibate. Again, heterosexual or homosexual. For those who are called to a life of singleness in our church, male or female, for those who are called to this particular cross that they have to pick up, we as a church have to have this conviction and then we have to follow through on it in providing those deep and intimate and convincing relationships and self-sacrificial relationships. Because we cannot simply say to them, wow, you know, you can't find a husband or you can't find a wife or you're same-sex attracted and that's not going to work out for you. That's too bad. Bye. No. If we have this conviction, it means we're all in with these people. That we are the substitute for what they don't have. That we are their transparent and self-sacrificial and loving and intimate relationship here in the church. And we believe that. And we never say it's an easy burden, any easier than any of the burdens that we all carry. But Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 19, 12. He said, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. So you can be born this way, and it can happen, genetic, it can happen by an operation. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. What Jesus is saying, and Paul says it later on in 1 Corinthians, I won't bother to go there. Jesus says some people are going to be called to abstain from sex. Some people are going to be called to not live out a sexual identity. And they're going to do it for the kingdom of God. They're going to do it because they treasure Christ and they've come to a greater joy and a greater fulfillment and a greater satisfaction in Christ than they have in fulfilling their sexual desire. Now, the other reason that we have these convictions is that we also have the testimony of it. And I'll just quickly, and there's great resources on this. But I, one of the reasons that I believe it, and I can have these conversations with people, is because there's people like Rosaria Butterfield. There's people like Nick Rowan. There's people like Peter Hubbard. There's people like Christopher Wong, right? And you can read their biography. You can read their story. These are same-sex-attracted people. Rosaria Butterfield was a radical left-wing feminist professor writing a Ph.D. on how the church is dysfunctional in the area of gender identity 
and she went to interview a pastor because she thought, maybe I should talk to a pastor before I write this. And over several years of just compassionate, loving conversations and reading the scripture, she realized that God had something better in store. So this is not just words. This is reality in people's lives. And I encourage you, I'll I'll put the resource index on the website uh, along with the sermon, and I encourage you to look into those testimonies and hear these people. This is not just me up here saying this is something that would be real nice if it happened. This happens. And you know that it's happened in your life, Christians. You know that God has transformed you in areas you never believed you could be transformed. And that you have found a greater joy and a greater treasure in Christ than in pursuing that old way of life. Amen. So I'm going to finish on the application with a prayer because we've got to get to communion. So I, I, I have some application for this, but I'm just going to pray the application, okay? Let's pray. Father God, we haven't made this a big deal. Culture has made this a big deal. You know, we get it that we're disordered in a lot of different ways, but this particular disorder, this particular practice, culture has put a gigantic star on and a spotlight on, and so we have to talk about it. And so, Lord... Thank you for opening up your word and opening up our hearts to be able to have this conversation. And from these convictions, if we just understand why we believe what we believe, what what flows from these convictions, Lord, and I pray this for myself and I pray this for our church, that we would absolutely love all people. That we would not be prejudiced in any way because of poverty, because of addiction, because of race, because of gender preference, anything. Homophobia, racism, classism, none of those isms or fears have any place in the church. So Lord, I start there with that prayer, that we would just love each and every person. And Father, I pray that we would be convicted of in our own lives and live out those convictions that there is a greater hope and a greater joy in following you in making Christ our treasure than in putting our treasure or our hope or identity in any other thing. It's really that simple, Lord. We love you. You are our greatest treasure. And Father, from that flows the reality that the gospel that you gave us, that Christ lived the perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death and then was raised from the dead as proof of the promise that your Holy Spirit would come and it's a transforming power. Your word says, and this is an incredible statement, that it is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead that resides in us. So when we say there's resurrection power, that's not just some old Christian phrase that we spin out. That's your word. There is a resurrection power in your children to raise us from the dead, to conquer our disordered passions to live righteously and purely for you in the sacredness of marriage or in the victory of celibacy. And Lord, we as a church, we want to introduce people to you. We want to lead them into that life of greater joy. And we get it that they won't believe us. So help us to live lives that prove how much we treasure you and how much joy we have in you. 
so that they can see it. And then maybe we'll be able to sit down and have this conversation and say, we love you. We want what's best for you. And we're convinced that this is what's best for you. Now and for eternity. Because we take seriously that your sin could separate you eternally from God. And that you are settling for second best in this life now. When God has more joy and more victory for you than you can imagine if you followed him. Father, just get those convictions into our heart so that we live them out in this community and with our family members. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.